Dr. Kuntz, what's the difference between nostalgia and a good memory? <laughs> a good memory can be useful. I think nostalgia is really only useful for maybe initial inspiration, but it often leads to paralysis. I mean, nostalgia is in every Facebook meme for people that are asked the question, who remembers eating this or using this product that doesn't exist anymore or something or driving an American branded car that was actually made in the United States by Americans. It's not really useful or helpful, whereas a good memory can be extremely useful because it gives you options that people who don't have memories or have never developed them uh, have no concept of. They live, they're kind of condemned in a, a prison of the present. Well, so again, can you try to describe, like if you had to define nostalgia and define memory, yeah. what is a, a categorical distinction between them? Well, memory is actually just a faculty. So you either have it or you don't. It's like, it's like saying you can lift 200 pounds, but not 300 pounds. I can remember this, or I can't remember that, or I can remember things that happened 40 years ago, but I can't remember what happened four hours ago. Memory is just a capacity that's either bigger or smaller. Nostalgia could be a capacity for imagination. That's why I think some people are much more affected by nostalgia than others. Other people have past that they want to forget, but they can't because of their memory, but that causes them not to have nostalgia. I think nostalgia is a lot more involved with emotion than memory is necessarily, because I can remember things I don't feel anything about particularly. That's really interesting. So, so memory is a natural thing, and nostalgia is in some way, via imagination, I don't want to say supernatural, I don't want to say unnatural, but you get the gist of the distinction I'm making, right? Yeah, I, th I think memory is natural to being human. Nostalgia may be more or less present in a given place or time, right? So like, it used to be the case that Brazilian Portuguese had this word saudade for nostalgia for something that you may never have actually experienced. And I think partly because of modern media and people's lively sense that things were probably better in the past, a lot of younger people in America probably actually have that feeling now, whereas English doesn't really have a word for it yet exactly. I was just thinking how you can't really have nostalgia if you're doing the same thing your grandfather was doing and and your civilization is kind of thinking the same way. You know, if you're not all moving away from or falling away from a, a, a con into a constant change. And so some ways I'm some ways I'm wondering if nostalgia is a particularly modern phenomenon. But I by modern I mean like enlightenment. So that that would include the Greeks. I'm sure it shows up in in Greek philosophy as as a concept. Let me move us in a different direction. Do you want to say something else? I mean, I, it's fascinating, but I got a hook for the next. The next thing too, either way. Yeah, I just, I, real quick, I don't, I don't think nostalgia is particularly modern. I think it's particularly something that decadent societies have mm -hmm. more of than nascent or healthy societies because nostalgia is where I go when I realize that I don't have what I used to have or what I should have or what I remember having. Yeah, the, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says something like, uh, do not say where have the good old days gone for saying such things is not wise. It's just, it's just it's straight up, right? So, so what is the difference between nostalgia and mental illness then? Nostalgia could become mental illness, but isn't necessarily. Because I think that when we're talking about the term mental illness, and I chose to use the, the word illness rather than health, because I think that's much more 
difficult to define. And I don't think that our healthcare system, either mental or physical health, is actually good or designed to deal with health. Mm-mm. I think it's designed to deal with illness, mm-hmm. mental or physical. So I, I, it's, a, it's a little easier to say what's off than, than what's actually good or healthy in some cases. But I think nostalgia can tip into mental illness anytime that it overtakes you, because I think something common to mental illness is a sense of not being able to be in control, almost as if something is, something is overtaking you similar to being drunk or to being under oppression where you want to be some other way or you want to do some other thing, but you can't for whatever number of factors could be chemical, could be sociological, could be personal, but you're not under control. And nostalgia could tip into illness if you would, if taken as sort of the dominating factor in your life. I mean, you could say, you could say, well, I'm nostalgic for the 1950s. So, you know, that starts with, I'm going to put, you know, little pink plastic flamingos in my front yard and I'm going to dress in a certain way and I'm only going to watch TV shows because you could actually do all this technologically speaking in modern America. You could try to pretend that you lived in the 1950s. After a while, that that would get pretty weird, especially if you refuse to engage in any cultural references post-dating 1959. So you can see how, I mean, that's kind of, that seems silly, but you can see how it can easily go there. Because I think fundamentally what you're talking about is something is off balance and therefore it's pushing you in a direction that you probably don't want to go. Well, so nostalgia is a form of fantasy. And then it would seem, a lot of what you said made me think of like group panic. And it's almost as, you know, pushing this back through the memes yeah. That the the internet hunger for nostalgia is a form of group panic by which we're trying to talk ourselves into thinking it'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that some, some conglomeration of identities or consumption habits or something will actually get me to where I want to be. So I, I th- this is interesting because we've just had, we've just had two shootings, one in Atlanta and now one in Boulder, Colorado. And it's very easy to see that the, the story of mental illness in the media is useful for the purposes of gun control. So that's what they're doing with the Boulder shooting. Because the guy's name is Ahmad al-Issa, and he was born in Syria and almost undoubtedly is an Islamist. The guy Long, Robert Long, maybe his name is in Atlanta, actually says, I'm doing this because of sexual addiction and illness. But then because he's white, you know, this is understood as a problem of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And so mental illness really isn't in the mix there. So part of the problem with the discussion of mental illness in public is that it is, like so much else, politically co-opted. But I think that the reason that it seems plausible to people is because almost all of us know people or are people who have been diagnosed with a mental illness, who have been prescribed some form of medication or therapy or both. And so it seems plausible because we know so many unhappy people who are on the internet all the time trying to cobble together identities. And the guy in Colorado, I know less about the guy in Georgia. The guy in Colorado was was that. I mean, he's been posting about his problems, and but also Islam, but also how much he hates Trump for a long time. 
How does this tie in then to homelessness? And I mean, I, I don't want to go too fast to that either. Yeah. Because you've just you just opened the door to talking about everything from grade school boys for the past 40 years being put on Ritalin right. to yep. deal with them being boys uh, to <laughs> uh, immigration policy and bringing in a radical sectarian group as refugees who happen to have a religious bent against a lot of the stuff you want to promote, uh, you know, yeah. lesbianism, things like that. And, yeah. and, you know, it's also a wide, wide scope. But we also got to tie this to the idea that there's there's another crisis going on, not just yeah. at the south of the border. I mean, that'll yeah. increase it. But the, there's a crisis in the country. Certain areas is concentrated, but it is everywhere of homelessness mm-hmm. and yeah. that this is a rising phenomenon. It's there's yeah. more. Yeah. And I and I don't want to move too fast because we do. I we do have like two weeks and we're using homelessness as a barometer. But the commonalities between the shooting in Atlanta and the shooting in Boulder involve another barometer, which is young men without many life prospects adrift, and then using something that they see as a solution to some problem, allegedly sex addiction. In the one case, that's what the guy has claimed publicly. Um, in the other case, he hasn't claimed anything, but you know, you have some clues from his social media, which has now been scrubbed by Facebook. But what you're dealing with are people as barometers, sort of canaries in the coal mine, And there are so many different poisonous gases in our particular coal mine that there are all kinds of different barometers. And when I say barometer, I mean something that tells me what the pressure is like in Mm. here. And if I can identify that like crime rates spike after the 1960s and have never returned to pre-1960s levels, or if I can identify any set of just sort of trends anywhere, then using that i can i can i can maybe start to get at what what is ex- what is actually wrong with us because even if i like if i understand something about somebody that's brought i think he came al isa came to the united states when he was 3 he was brought brought to the us when he's 3 from syria in 2002 what is it like growing up i mean who does he know in in colorado what does he have in common with the people he goes to school with what is his life like? Is he happy? How many other Muslims does he know? You know, and so I, I think that one of the things that the casino does to us is it makes us necessarily isolated. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't really know each other. And even like real life solutions that we seek, like the guy in Georgia had joined some kind of church, I think it was a Southern Baptist church, trying to deal with his sexual problems, watching pornography for like hours a day. I mean, the guy's life is just kind of completely destroyed. He might as well be on a literal drug because it's well, destroying his life. He just the is. Same. And this is, you know, this is so important when you talk about dopamine issues and yeah. blue light, which is a dopamine uh, increaser and you go off and then your serotonin uh, reuptakes and all that stuff goes on and you're, you don't want to do it. So you go back to the blue light and then you, that combination, that's the fact with movies, that's the fact with scrolling yeah. on your Twitter. You combine yeah. that with the component of erotic stimulation that uh, of viewing pornography gives, and you have a drug. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no question. Yeah. It's right. a drug. We just have a really overly narrowed therapeutic view of the word drug. Uh, therapeutic, pharmaceutic Pharmaceutical, view of yeah, the word right. drug. Yeah, right, right. So we're looking at homelessness as another kind of a barometer 
But I brought up both those young men because they are so in, in, in so many ways, actually, if you look at their social media posts, if you can find this, this is usually screen caps in you know, different corners of the internet. They're so lonely and their lives are so disjointed. And even when they make efforts at improvement or change, like so Alisa has this, I mean, this is a guy that just shot 10 people to death, right? Five years ago, he's got relatively wise Facebook posts for a guy in his late teens about not making decisions when you're emotional, <laughs> you know? And so there's, there's, there, it's, tra it's, it's just tragic. And the fact that homelessness is something that people think of as sort of like a, a niche issue. And usually a lot of the things that I, that I've been trying to do recently on this show are things that I find actually do get covered relatively well, even in legacy media, but only on a local level. Mm. So if you dig into like the, you know, San Jose Mercury news on homelessness, right. you'll actually get interesting stories that are pretty well told with detail. It's just that national media, which is partly because people are getting media through aggregators, Apple News, Google News, or CNN still, they're not really seeing the things that are even right in front of them, or their knowledge of it is just anecdotal. So if you live in San Jose, it's the stuff that you see. Right. And it's not necessarily the good things that journalism can do in explaining to you, well, 20 years ago, it wasn't like this. And here's what changed and, and stuff like that. So homelessness is a kind of a barometer for us this week on mental illness. Next week on economic depression, or, or let's say a little more generically, hard times, because financial reporting will use all kinds of different tricky words to tell you <laughs> you're not in a depression. <laughs> so, right, right, right. right. Yeah. So, so some of what you said made me think of, I won't go deep on this, Jordan Peterson's 12 Roofs for Life. I've only read the first mm -hmm. chapter, and it's all I feel I've needed so far. And uh, the trauma of the sad lobster and the ordeal of becoming the alpha lobster again, it's its for real. There's a lot of sad mm -hmm. lobsters out there. The reason Jordan Peterson's having the influence he is is because he's speaking to the same kind of issue. Uh, young men adrift, yeah. eventually radicalizing against their own shame, fear, loneliness, any of those things, and uh, uh, screaming, right? Crying yeah. for something with rage and hate. And we sit here shocked that the world which gave us Genghis Khan and Adolf Hitler could somehow produce such a thing from a society that is recklessly uh, binding its children with, with drugs and uh, teaching that they are monkeys without a, a future. Uh, you know, we're surprised. We're surprised. Yeah. Homelessness then, I, 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 I want to get to that, but so mental illness, the other yeah. thing you said that I want to go back to like our, our 1984 doublespeak stuff, you know, the uh, hostage crisis team is the terrorist kill squad and all, all these kinds of things right. yeah. um, to see that talk of the mental health industry or uh, the medical health industry is, as you said, a mental and medical illness industry. Um, I think right. that's really, really important to catch the doublespeaks at work there. And then realizing that because of the superfluous nature of what effectively are drugs and that they are chemicals that mess with your mind, things like wheat and sugar and TV, the sur superfluousness of these things throughout American society and then into other things like alcohol and coffee and whatever other hard substances you want to talk about, that the end result of this 
what stimulating effect uh, upon us has been uh, the complete sab lobster like we have no win we can never win we are not even people anymore we're the unseen uh, homeless reality right where the they are not just mentally ill they're, yeah. if you spend time with them many of them are just they're gone like they're just they're just gone you can't really find the person so i don't we don't have to go all the way to that level either yeah. but yeah there's my 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 attempt at a bridge well, I mentioned San Jose, and the reason I mentioned that was because my best friend from college has lived there basically his whole life, except when we were in college. And but his parents are from South Korea, and um, you know at this point they all hate California, but and where he's lived his whole life. But one thing that he said was that you know we still treat people who are very poor or homeless people better than you know his parents say they're treated in South Korea. Hmm. And I think that's, I think that's interesting. I think using how the homeless are treated as a barometer, I think is really important for any society because these are people who generally as a, certainly as a political entity have nothing to offer. So this is a barometer for charity. It's a, yeah, it's a barometer for how a given society thinks about people who have sort of flunked out by one or more measures in that society. So in, I mean, the homeless are kind of famously difficult to count and survey and figure out where they're coming from, but it's kind of widely recognized that what, what any range of what could be called mental illnesses are going to be majority present right. among any given homeless population, no matter what their demographics are, single black males, white families with children, et cetera. The demographics really kind of uniformly among the adults reveal mental illness as a struggle for a majority of them. And that, that barometer for me means that if I have, if I have a whole group of people, California has, <laughs> California has like a, a mid-sized American city right. of homeless. Now it's unique in that, but New York is approaching about a hundred thousand as of 2019. If I have a, if I have n numbers of people that large, 100,000, 90,000, 50,000, maybe in Florida, numbers that large, they don't have any political power. Uh, how are they going to organize? Then I can actually figure out how and for whom and, and why a given place is being governed the way it is. Because if I look at people who feel like they have some stake, like a lot of people who are kind of nice Republican voters have in the past year realized nobody is actually doing this. You know, nobody is in this for me because I never get what I want and I always get the opposite of what I want and I'm constantly told I'm evil. But you could have looked at people who already no one cares about and found out many of those things earlier or already or maybe in some cases in advance. So that's why I'm looking at it because I think Almost every American has or will have, and you probably don't listen to this show if this doesn't affect you or your extended family, has or will have problems with mental illness, or at least, as you were talking about, things that very much endanger their mental health, their mental functioning, and or money now or in the years to come. So if we look at the people that have no political power whatsoever, okay, and find out what's happening to their mental health and how they're connected to economic hard times, I think we'll find out a lot about things for a much broader number of people, wider swath of people 
than just the hundreds of thousands, probably a lot more Americans who are homeless today. So I think I get the hypothesis. And again, we have a we have a microcosm of people who are adrift within the American zeitgeist. Yeah. And exhibiting a wide range of mental frailties that are probably present in much of the so-called middle class American populace, only the alcohol hasn't driven them to the street yet. Or they still have enough sanity to not beat their kids and, you know, to still pay their bills. But there's some, like, reflection point there wherein we can see the direction, the trajectory of the society. Right. And that is what you just said is especially true because of the advent of psychotropic drugs. So Mm -hmm. the history that we're doing today has to do with the fact that a lot of those people who today are being pharmaceutically managed are people who in previous years from about the middle of the 19th to the middle of the 20th century would have been institutionalized. And, so say those dates again then. Yeah. So from about the, the advent of the first effective antipsychotic medication in 1955, you now have a, a long running process. So we're at close to 70 years of this, of deinstitutionalization in about the 120 years before 1955. Right, because all they did was throw them in like prison and chains and they electrocuted them for tests and stuff. And so that was wrong. We got rid of that. And now we have doctors. The movies told me that. (laughs) There is is an interesting way in which we are actually now back to where we started Hmm. in like colonial America because the way that mental illness is dealt with up to roughly the 1820s is that what we would now identify as mental illness and what and what people at the time did too. I mean, people in the past were not Neanderthals. They were observant and they didn't believe that everything bad was caused by witches. But they didn't know what to do. So where you didn't have some form of family care and who knows what the quality was, stories about people chaining relatives in, up in the barn are not all entirely false. But by and large, the way that this was handled, because we know the people that changed the system talked about the way it was before, what we generally did, especially in cities, because in cities, people are always disconnected more than in a rural area. So as America becomes more urbanized, Boston and New York notices that, hey, we have all these people and they're kind of at loose ends all the time. They don't have steady work. They don't necessarily always have somewhere to sleep. Although it's, you know, with fewer zoning laws at the time, it's easier to throw up a shack uh, and rent it out to people continuously. So there is almost more overnight housing than there is today because of our zoning laws. But basically what, where these guys are going to end up at one time or another and more or less continuously are the jails of our cities. So they're in and out of jail. And it's interesting, and I'm not really going to talk so much about the present and the prison system almost anyone who works in the prison system recognizes we're kind of back there now. We're back to 1795, where the homeless and especially the mentally ill homeless are going to cycle in and out of our correctional system at various levels most of their lives, unless there's some kind of intervention. So 
the the past is now the present again. Right, because whatever your regular population mental illness diagnostic is or diagnosis is, your prisons are going to be a higher capacity of those very same people. Um, yeah. I want to we, we should have done this way at the start. I want to make sure it's clear. Um, yeah. Can you just define then mental illness? Give us at least one case example of some kind of, of mental illness of the, the capacity you're talking about. Yeah. So there's an interesting example in a book that I recommend to anybody that has kids. It's, it's really a, a it's just kind of a great story. It's called The Hoosier Schoolmaster. And it's about kind of frontier America and how people lived at that time. But in that time, you see what early America was able to cobble together to take care of people that had catastrophic life problems, enormous debt, or in this case, mental illness. So there's a character in that story uh, who's called General Andrew Jackson because he believes he is Andrew Jackson. He's not. (laughs) but he's used by the author as a sort of truth teller. And whenever he's telling the truth, he says very clearly, one side of my head is tater. You know, it's made out of potato. It's gone all soft, but half the time I'm functional and I know what happened. And he's an important character for the plot of this story, the Hoosier schoolmaster. That's, you know, where in a really extreme example, you know, there are three guys in the psychiatric ward at Thomas Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia, let's say roughly three at any given time, who believe they are Jesus Christ. Right. So we're, we're not really talking just kind of anxiety quite. Yeah, we're not, we're not talking like I'm nervous or I'm depressed or I'm anxious, because in that case, we would have to start talking about things that aren't distinctive of the homeless in any way, in any proportion, which would be things like obesity, screen usage, lots of kind of simple fixes before we start talking about illness that causes you to believe that you're Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, those things are themselves the the illness, right, for for many people. Right. Um, So things like then also, just for some categories, borderline personality disorder, uh, Mm -hmm. someone who is truly bipolar, manic depressive. These would be people who, before the pharma fix of all, they would have had catastrophic lives and communities— often in the Judeo-Christian West, tried to help them as best they could. And yeah. I imagine that the number of people who were chained in garages, you know, were, were very few compared to just in general, the, again, charity of the society that tends to care for the least of these among it as a legacy of Jesus. And, and hence, insane yeah. guys, when they really are screaming for power, like they're so lonely, they don't know what else to do. They want to be Jesus, because why not? He's the, he's, the, he's the heartbeat of the zeitgeist behind the whole West in, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. So anyway, I might have gone too far there at the end for no, our fine. purposes no. today. but. No. I, I think I think probably the key factor here in both the increase of homelessness, no doubt, but also the increase of an infrastructure to care for mental illness in the United States, like pretty much all Western countries, is urbanization. So the more urban the population becomes, the more sort of transient people you're going to have on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. And the structures of care that exist for people prior to the 19th century throughout the West are generally based on the church or organized in accord with the church down to the names of local government institutions being called parishes in even a place like South Carolina or Louisiana. And so you have local infrastructures to care for a local non-transient population, some of whom at any given time are going to have really horrible financial problems or medical problems or what have you problems. 
And so the care structures that are set up are almost entirely church-based and almost entirely localized. So London, for instance, is a place that's gonna face some of these things from the very first that later Boston and New York will have to deal with because London is one of the first places in the world to deal with enormous amounts of people who live in London but aren't from London. And England is not set up to deal with this because you're supposed to receive care from your local parish priest. You can go back there and receive care, but you can't get care in London. So you start getting institutions and what you have in the United States to deal with mental illness, not just poverty or homelessness, are state hospitals. Mm -hmm. And even that term still sort of connotes insane asylum mm -hmm. for good reason, because states like Massachusetts, first of all, followed by many others in the Northeast and then throughout the country, begin in about the 20 years prior to our civil war to set up hospitals. The first one is Worcester, Massachusetts, in order to cope with the fact of people who are who cannot be cared for by the structures that we already have or who have slipped out of some structure, slipped out of the family they were born in, slipped out of the parish they came from, because New England is set up largely as a state church, honestly. So they had they were similar to England in that way. And what do I do for those people? What do I do with those people? And that's when you get a rise from before our civil war going all the way down to after the Second World War, in which the common solution to any kind of long-standing mental illness is institutionalization, either temporarily or permanently. And of those, when do we move from state hospitals to something more than state hospitals? Or do we? Uh, we, we really don't. I mean, you're going to get different sizes. Right. So um, then that just kind of, all that lead, that goes all the way to yeah. 1955 and the movie One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest is somewhere in the mix of all of that, uh, a commentary on it, I imagine. Yeah. What, yeah. I mean, what, what's interesting about that is that until after the Second World War, you don't get any sort of enormous exposés, journalistic exposés on the mental health, let's say industry or mental illness industry. And that is sort of remarkable because journalists do exposés on all kinds of other things. And next week I'll talk about some of the, the, the ways that they talked about hobo culture or tramp culture. These are mm -hmm. kind of pre-contemporary names for the homeless. We say kind of in a bland way today, but we don't get exposés until 1946. And then Time Magazine does an expose with photos. And that's kind of, I think that's crucial because I think that mental illness is handled prior to the 19th, prior to deinstitutionalization de in a way that we largely treat death today. Okay. So today people have no concept of what dead bodies look like or do. They don't know how to care for them or wash them or prepare them. And there's a time, especially before the civil war, when that's really, everyone knows that everybody, there are, there are barely funeral homes or undertakers on a professional basis before the American civil war. And something similar happen is is happening from you know mid nineteenth to mid twentieth century, where nobody really has to deal with the mentally ill. Not, I mean, if you can get them permanently committed, you don't have to deal with it. They're just they're gone, and you might have somebody in your family history. If you're listening to this, you 
you might, if you look into it, or if you know about it already, you might have somebody who's actually like your, your great uncle and you, you don't even know he existed because part of the bargain was, you know, uncle, you know, Dave went away when he was 23 and he doesn't come back. So, you know, if you're descended from his sister, you probably never met him. Mm-hmm. This happens in North Korea like that. Uncle Dave, he goes away and he never comes back. He was mentally ill and is is here to see the connection yeah yeah the the soviets the soviets did this because the soviet union rose in a time in which institutionalization was easily done and easily discussed golly i want to jump on that dude i sorry my other point is not nearly as important institutionalism being easy right being a part of this and then somehow that ties to post-1955, whatever we're doing. We can't just turn around and build more institutions now. Like, so we experimented with these things in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where you're going here, right? With what, what changed at 1955? What, what was the big... Yeah, 55 is when the first effective antipsychotic medication is put on the market. And what that enables is for people to be relatively... And if you know anything about the history of pharmaceuticals, you know, think usually the drug is extremely rough and then it's refined or it's refined by a different company or something with hopefully fewer side effects. But this enables people who otherwise wouldn't really be functional on their own in daily life to perhaps be functional. And so there's a process that begins in 1955 that is accelerated by two things I'll talk about in a little bit. But it's a process that continues down to today, and it really is enabled by pharmaceutical solutions to mental illness. Without those, we would probably still be doing institutionalization because no one really had a different solution, but then, not on any kind of scale. Yeah, but homelessness. So it hasn't fixed it, right? It's, it, and that's the there's a cycle mm-hmm. here that yeah. I'm not seeing quite the connection, but I think you do, and or you're wanting me wanting us to intuit something here, right? Well, because when people think about homelessness, they they often think about economic, you know, bad fortune, which is why I'm doing that second, because what they're not what what people probably think about less intuitively is the idea that the massive spike in homelessness, especially after the 1970s, is not solely or maybe even primarily due to the fact that wages have been largely stagnant when adjusted for inflation since the 70s. They are in, a, in an enormous way due to the fact of deinstitutionalization and the fact that pharmaceutical solutions perhaps do not address for people who have enormous problems and problems that are larger than, let's say, chemical imbalances in the brain, they do not address what mental illness actually is and therefore are not addressing or can't address the fact that this so often drives people into homelessness because homelessness here is not just a measure of whether or not I was, you know, I was able to keep up with my mortgage or something or whether I was able to, you know, pay my 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 back rent and uh, keep up so I didn't get evicted by my landlord. Homelessness is also a measure of do I have anyone I can turn to when things go south or do I know anyone in this town or lots of other measures that are in some sense 
much harder to measure, but easier to see if you drill down to an individual person's life. So isolation, loneliness, was this person sexually abused as a child? Lots of questions. And because those things are only partially treatable through antipsychotic medication, if that's at all helpful in a given person's case, we can't really stem the flow of the increase of homelessness or the increase of homeless camps in places that used to look more like first world countries. So the connection is that the one is actually driving and supplying and increasing the other, but people think that they're completely disconnected questions. And when you don't think that mental illness somehow drives or influences homelessness, both in numbers and also in intensity or growth, then you also see no connection between yourself and the homeless because you're like, well, I'm driving this car past this homeless encampment on my way to my job. So I'm completely separated from these people. Like that's really sad, but that's them and this is me. But if you can see that you're actually kind of on a continuum here, you are yet another anxious, depressed, somewhat miserable, fearful modern American. So are they. Yeah, right. Right. And they would say you just have to be somewhere and they don't. They, right. you know, they, they've actually become masters of their own ship in that regard. The yeah. ones, they'll, I mean, <laughs> they'll, right. t- they'll tell you that too. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. ones that can hold a conversation. And there is, there is a, can I say it, psychotic element. I mean, the, so we have these anti-psychotic drugs as well that are supposed to be yeah. solving all this. Um, right. Okay. I kind of want you to repeat everything you said again because it was so valuable. And I think it could be, it could be circled around many times. But at the heart of it seems to me to be the issue of the soul or a disbelief thereof. And forget like the Christian salvation soteriology need for a moment. Let's just stick with like, you know, man as made by panspermia when the aliens left us here has a spiritual component that involves, you know, breath and mind and a bunch of other things that don't just show up on a chemistry sheet when you do a blood, blood panel or whatever. Yeah. 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 And I, and I, I don't, I, I don't think in this case, people that are all at all informed about either mental illness or homelessness are usually lacking a soul. But I think that because it is so easy to dismiss people who have no power, it's, it's, it's very, very easy to ignore the existence of the soul and the, and therefore the complexity of human problems for a group that has no power. So one way to see that is that there's really only a single piece of federal legislation that has ever addressed the nature of homelessness directly. It's the McKinney-Vento Act, and it was in the mid-1980s, uh, 1987, I think. And it just, it just it, it made it possible that if you don't have a permanent address, you can still draw certain government benefits. And this itself was also not misguided. A lot of it was driven by the enormous disproportionate number of Vietnam veterans as compared to Korea or World War II veterans, Vietnam veterans who were homeless. And the intention was, okay, you know, you served your country. It was horrible. You're miserable. It destroyed your life. We're at least not going to cut off your veterans benefits simply because, you know, you don't have a permanent address. And in some ways, the way that homeless veterans have been treated gets a little bit more help than somebody who 
didn't serve in the military right. and is, you know, yeah. Right. It gets, it gets more attention and, and right. not to leave that with Nam, but I think, uh, Iraq too is having a similar effect with at least a, a portion of the returners. And my, my hunch after the recent news, I've learned about single, single, no, bisex, single unit bunking rape culture in the military at the moment. My guess is there going to be some PTSD coming out of that in the next uh, 20 or 30 years as well as they make the flight suits for the babies and all this uh, Biden, Biden talked about. So to be poor of soul maybe is a communal reality. And, and you know, the, the, those who are among the homeless are a group of people who are poor of soul. And I, I'm, I'm curious about that. Uh, but then also, now we've twice got gone into this deinstitutionalizing. Yeah. Um, that seems like a big word. I don't think we've spent any time on it up to this point. Most of our listeners are probably like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's what's happening. But then we're all maybe a little bit hard pressed to describe what that means or why it's even yeah. part of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It's got kind of two facets. One is that when Medicare and Medicaid come in in a big way in 1965, they will fund mental Ill, mental health care for someone who is in what's called a community mental health center or who is cared for by a community mental health center, which is really the infrastructure now that is the public infrastructure. So if, if, if you can't afford something else, the government will pay for that. It would not pay for an, in, for an individual who is permanently institutionalized. So healthcare providers at every level and of every size have no financial incentive to keep people institutionalized. And so we just part stopped of, funding the asylums. They were, they were funded by the churches to begin with, and then taxes funded an alternative that's, that's a different religion, basically. And now that's, that's what's running it. We have a different yeah, religion's charity. And well, the reason and the reason that they had community mental health centers to send them to is because prior to 1965, but without the same funding incentives, JFK, whose sister had sort of had 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 been institutionalized and then lobotomized, <laughs> JFK wanted to foster community mental health as a more humane, more socially integrated way of caring for people with mental illness. So. I, I, I part of the reason that I pick this and I'm and I'm associating it with homelessness is because I think something you can see is that even if the system is trying to care for you, is aware of your group and is trying to care for you, it often can't do it all that well. Mm -mm. Because even when the intentions are very good in the case of JFK, who has a personal motive in all of this, like a, a good personal motive it may not achieve what it's intended to achieve because what happens those are, so there's sort of like federal initiatives and federal incentives but that interacts with another reality of post vietnam america which is that issues of government funding of every kind become wildly politically disagreed upon and so an example of this is that in california which kind of is always kind of your your league leader in homelessness as a problem, even if you go back to the 60s. In Ronald Reagan's first term as governor, which is which I think begins in 67, it's late 60s, and it's going to continue into the 70s. In his first term, he cuts funding for state provided, that's who's supposed to do it still. Right, right. Then. State provided mental health, why does he do that? Well, because he's a conservative Republican, and 
as of the late 60s, that's beginning to mean that you just cut programs anytime that you can, generally speaking, unless it's maybe on a state level, something like law enforcement. So you get two things happening at the same time. One is a well-intentioned, but only pharmaceutically enabled drive to get people out of institutions and to something resembling a normal life. And I think it's well-intentioned. I'm not sure that it has worked, but I think it was well-intentioned. Similarly, you get what is really an independent variable, which is a breakdown in political consensus at every level of government, really brought on by, let's just say the 60s with a capital S. And now I cannot agree that this needs to be funded or that needs to be funded, right? And so you can see, and you see this, you see the same sort of reality in politics now with the Biden administration, which talks about like, you know, violence against trans women of color, as if this is an issue like literally everybody knows about. And the only reason we're not throwing millions of dollars at it every single day is because we're all like heartless animals. That's right. We walk but, by it on the street constantly, do nothing, nothing. Right. right. So what, what, what you really, what what's really sad about this is there's all kinds of good intentions along with what I think ultimately is going to be a very sad way to handle it, which is pharmaceutically, but on, and, but also a lucrative way to handle it. But on the other hand, you have this independently moving, just total breakdown in agreement on what is even wrong. Oh, that's just it. No, no, no. And yeah. this is the sixties. There's nothing wrong. At the one hand, you know, got to end war, make peace, but then mankind has nothing wrong with him. There's no such right. thing as a bad Man, and and right. I don't think one has to be a Christian to philosophically come to the conclusion that there are disturbed people who are going to be bad in some way. Now, you can how you define that. Communities yeah. need to do that. Usually, it's the guy killing people, you know, or yeah. sometimes it's the guy howling at the moon. Uh, yeah. But we don't live in a society where you're allowed to believe any child can be quote unquote left behind as opposed to like stubbornly staying behind and deciding to call down demons into his soul to become a witch doctor and scream at the moon. I, you know, yeah. that that happens on this planet and we want to live as if it doesn't. And and that's what we see, I think, in a lot of ways. Well, I think that, yeah, I think I think that talking about the homeless is a fascinating way to look at how or why anything actually changes politically in a public way and what even gets to be a political issue to be voted upon or, or executive ordered upon or something like that. Because if you look at children as a category, that is a much bigger and more politically, potentially extremely lucrative for a politician group to claim you are acting in favor of because it's people's future and it's the nearest thing to a sense that they have of anything that goes on after they die. But something, something that you can see is that both the homeless and children and the mentally ill as groups are talked about because they often are not politically organized themselves. They're talked about abstractly and therefore they get handouts. Well, they're wards of the state, ultimately. Yeah, they're ultimately thought of as wards of the state. And you can see that if someone doesn't really care about you, what he's going to give you is a, is a systemic solution. So let me maybe explain this a little bit more concretely. I always thought about this when even the first time that, that Donald Trump started to use the phrase, which is actually from Reagan's first presidential run, make America great again. Um, and some of the political advisors, including Norman Finkelstein, are actually 
the same between those two campaigns. So that's part of why there's so much repetition. But when Trump said that, you know, and I thought about that and, and, and I thought, you know, a lot of his proposals were, were good and helpful and everything. But the other, the thing that I thought about was that I think a lot of people who have mentally ill family members who have lost their jobs, who are seeing family breakdown very concretely in their own families in real time, who see their own health of all kinds fading quick. I think that they heard that slogan or in the 80s, they heard it. Maybe they were here for both times and they thought that somehow that was actually about their lives. And, that, and that's the genius of political slogans, right? But the thing that I thought was that doesn't actually do anything about something that is a common factor among almost all mass shooters as far as anything I've ever seen, including the ones that the media never covers, and that is fatherlessness. <laughs> it's very easy for me to understand how that would destroy, especially a boy's health. And I see it even with men where the father is physically in the home, but doesn't know how to be a father. And so abdicates not so much the material provision, but the guidance and right. the wisdom that I think is the better part of fatherhood. And there's nothing that any politician can actually do for that. But I think that part of what happens in the media coverage that we do get is that we're given some sense that if we vote for the right people, we will somehow exit that problem. And that was, that was just never true. Even I think when they had really good personal intentions, as I think JFK did with community mental health, for example. So uh, I've, I've mentioned Jesus a couple of times now here, this show, he said this really like this mean thing once and several times he said mean things, but this one, the poor you will always have with you. Yeah. It sounds heartless. And yet Christianity has been practiced as a religion which sees the poor as a neighbor in need, uh, sees the value of, of every person, but also has never really seen that as a top-down institutional thing. I mean, Rome's tried, but there's been some debate about that, right? Usually the charity of Christianity is done locally where Christians who go to church on Sunday live in the same town with these other people, and then they they seek to what provide a peaceful and quiet life to the town. And what we're doing now is the opposite of that. We're all staying inside our homes and we're watching the internet and shouting at it and hoping that it will send us by Amazon a peaceful and quiet life. And the the contrast couldn't be starker. To bring this back to the casino, you know, mm -hmm. you know, to realize that what you are praying for America to make great again, it has no intention of nor ever doing. Uh, you are you are to fit into your box and put your coins in the slot machine. And we'll bury you when you're done, but we might sell your knees because you know, the bones are valuable. Um, and that, that ain't no joke either. So, you know, the heartlessness of the whole situation, Jesus says the poor will, you always have with you. I think what he's saying is that what I said earlier, evil is what it is. And it's going to be around us at all times. Mental illness, I think, is is a soul problem then. Yeah. Um, fatherlessness is a soul problem. A father right. who will not father is a soul problem. I don't think we're living in times that are so simple. It's all connected to one particular you know, piece of infrastructure that's made all this happen. But the common denominator in most of this conversation is some form of, of 
pharma techne, <laughs> you know, uh, some hybrid movement toward, you know, be your part in the battery as we work towards singularity for us. Would you please down there on the ground? You plebs. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I, I think that any demographic group in the United States becomes more and more defined by single motherhood, the farther away from the 1960s we get. I mean, it's, you know, it goes from, I don't know, 25 to 30 to 30% 30 of black births uh, prior to, let's say, 65 to a vast majority. Um, it's something like a third of white births now, whereas it was probably under 10% um, before 65. And it, it's really true for everybody. And what happens then is that you have lots of people who are disconnected from their biological nature. They have no father. So we're not, we're not saying like the father is dead or even the, ch the child was given up for adoption. <laughs> and I think in some cases, you know, dad lives in the house. It's just that it, when there is an abdication of the guidance of the human soul, the, the nature of dysfunction can't be simple because the human soul isn't a simple thing to guide. It takes enormous patience and time and learning and frustration. And so if you say, okay, well, what's going to fix homelessness, right? So there's a whole debate during the Obama administration about a radical change in federal policy, where now our whole policy and the whole push, and then of course it changed, you know, under the Trump administration, now it's changed right back. But the push under the Obama, starting under Obama is called a, a housing first policy. That is, before I worry about anything else going on with this person, I get him some temporary and or moving into permanent housing. Like on the border right now. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's those are permanent cages. That's different. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I think I think that if you're saying okay, well, and I and I think that's kind of driven by the word homeless. Like the central problem with this person is he doesn't have somewhere to sleep at night. And some of that honestly could just be rectified by loosening up zoning laws back to like pre 1930 standards because you know the term flop house existed in American slang for a place you could stay in a room for just one night, single room occupancy units. And there used to be tons of them even all over Manhattan. And now there aren't mm -hmm. because people don't want to see that. And yeah, there's like, there are hygiene yeah. issues. And I would imagine yeah, that no. there, are, there are ruffian issues that arise. A Sherwood Forest even might, might come, come into mind at some point. Totally. Yeah, totally. So but what I think I think what you're what you're looking at, and if you look at like um, I think Oakland, California, built tiny houses in city parking lots for their enormous homeless population, you will notice a strong resemblance between those and Department of Homeland Security and Border Patrol's housing for migrants. That is, when you are kind of underneath, you are you are you are beneath the economic economically productive radar of our regime, somebody might be able to do something for you. And pretty much throughout the United States, churches are going to do a lot of that for you without a lot of help or thanks from the government, unless they're really good at grant writing. But ultimately, you will be housed largely like livestock. And that's about as good as it's going to get. Churches and can't afford to do the institutional thing anymore. No, they we, can't. We just no, don't have that, that, the numbers. We, we don't have support. We don't. The grapes and, of wrath. Oh, go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. And so, and so I think the reason that the debate became about housing first is partly because all these agencies and social workers and stuff are set up to deal with material solutions. But it's also because it's really hard 
to say, and it's probably impossible for our regime to say, hey, this country produces enormous numbers of people who are more and more and more being failed out of and or failing out of basic life functioning. It's too expensive to live in California. It is too hard to figure out how to be alive if your dad didn't know how to be your dad uh, or never even tried. Uh, we don't teach you in public school how to you know, manage your checkbook. We're going to teach you about slavery, but we're not going to teach you whether or not you yourself might be one these days. So I, I don't know how our regime says, hey, look, actually, homelessness is a barometer of how much we're failing as a civilization. What if they see it as a barometer of how much they're succeeding? I mean, I, I'm just wondering if it's even uh, a problem for them, if it, instead it's more of a cover. I mean, it's a fair question. Yeah, right? the reason the reason the reason, you know, the audience is just hearing me like hearing me think right now is because this is something that, again, I would say if you're really interested, go find like a local newspaper in maybe like a city that's smaller than 500,000. And you might actually see some honest debate about this because the debate gets reduced to, you know, are we gonna, are we gonna put in benches in our city parks? And this happens even in, I mean, some people think, oh, California has the problems it does because it has the weather it does. So, but like New York has estimated in, in 2019, 92,000 homeless. Right. So this isn't just a function of no, weather. They're, they're it, concentrating where the handouts can be gotten. Yeah. And the, de the debates are about things like, are we going to put in benches with little dividers so that you can't lay down? Are we going to make sure that the police have to round people up and put them into some kind of shelter or are the police not obligated to do that? The debates, it, it's, it's like our, uh, our structure is not built to debate. What does it mean that we have this many homeless? What does it mean that so many of them are mentally ill? Our what structure is it... wasn't built to rule from the top. It was built to let the bottom make its own decisions and stay out of the way. That, that, at one point, that's, that's how we all, at least in our minds too, have bought into the grand experiment. Those of us that, until recently, were still playing that game in that way. I, so I, I, I don't know. I think there is, again, a certain inevitability to this. Societies rise and fall. It tends to happen with, and this is an old historian hack, right? That that the society is forged in the fires of struggle, uh, and then uh, it, it comes upon itself. It understands, it grows, uh, and then it gets lazy. It gets easy. I think you can see that happening, but I can. I also feel like you can see. So tell me which one of these is right. Maybe I'm just blowing smoke. I also see what you have have alluded to is that there's a machine behind. The colonization, the uh, rebellion, the uh, the putting down and ending of slavery, sort of, but not really. Like there's a there's a financial network pushing behind all these things, and I don't know, I don't know. It just it just gets to be too much to think about. There, there you go. I'll leave it at that. I threw yeah. out a bunch of stuff that's too much to think about. <laughs> yeah, I think that I, the 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 American system is not actually set up for local decision making to matter all that much. So something common to state and local officials and state and local political debates, and this is why even local political debates are sort of limited in their usefulness, is that we all have to cope with the not just the you know what U.S. reps are saying on Twitter that day, 
but the funding incentives, you know, let's say against institutions and for deinstitutionalization in today's case that are set by the federal government. And because that's the case, effectively every problem becomes a functionally national problem and therefore limits my capacity to provide right. local or state solutions. So because it was set up to be far away, but now is close, it's become kind of the opposite. Like it, what I what I started saying before is that we wanted to have local controls. Yeah. But now the federal has become so local yeah. by its own choice. Like it's wanting this. It's Correct. creeping. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. Leviathan yeah. and all that. Yeah. The federal the federal is is always potentially in your daily life. Whereas like your, your, you know, your county tax collector is not yeah, yeah. necessarily. And so that's, that, that's probably the biggest facet of this on a structural level. And if we had, let's say structures that were stressed, that were, that were strained by urbanization in the 19th century, we now have structures that seem disinterested in solutions so that that to me is a much deeper crisis because right. I can innovate a new structure to care and hopefully to solve more of the problem, even if I accept there's going to be some number of people that I just can't help. That's fine. I accept that. But if now there is a structure that doesn't even want to do its job, the question I have to ask myself is, well, what does it want to do? Mm. <laughs> because it obviously doesn't want to get rid of, you know, enormous ongoing homeless encampments in states that are, in some cases, phenomenally wealthy. You know, Again, like, like trying to take a page out of a different world, though, like India, and see this is just as a caste issue. And to ask if this isn't, it's just not even really a problem for them. Like for them, it's more about placating a certain demographic of the voter populace who does happen to care about charity. Mm -hmm. But that all this is, is like, oh, look, the absolute deplorables, they need some nicer cages. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's not really a problem on their heart like it's not, <laughs> Cortez. No. Cortez hasn't been down to the uh, the the border crisis again since uh, since the new president came in. Right? There's all those photos of her screaming at the <laughs> fence from from way back there in Trump's. You know, it, <laughs> right. They don't really care. No. Uh, and this is a point you have taught me. So I didn't see this until our conversations began. That there is a caste structure within the United States. How complex it is 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 at least comparable to what we think of as say Indian society where you have all manner of, you can see it there by linguistic groups, kind of segregations yeah, and things. Right. But I think it's here. Uh, it's just the, the language is a lot more shared, but you'll find out where you belong and where you don't belong just by going some places that aren't the macro, you know, go to the non-federal places. And, and I'm talking about stores and neighborhoods and all that. And you'll find out where you're comfortable and where you're not. And there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of people here. I don't think it's all bad, right? Um, but to to live as if we're all one nation under not God, I mean, it, it's it's a bit of a myth again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think this is this is partly why I saved homelessness in relationship to economics for next week because I actually think that the division between rich and poor is America's version of a caste system because our caste system, our caste system. I, for instance, I think that obviously, like white men who are fine with being men, remaining men, you know, indefinitely, 
they're obviously kind of lowest on the totem pole in a in in the sense of political rhetoric and in the sense of ease of punishment and ascription of evil motives and stuff. But I don't I I actually I I do sincere I I think I think there are people that hate whites and and hate men and both at the same time. But I actually think that the most important division in local, state, and federal American politics actually concerns money because the caste system in the United States is not determined as it was in, you know, the Spanish colonies or in India or in, you know, Indonesia. It's not actually determined by racial or ethnic groups because they they care so little about those that they don't care whether or not your dad is present in the home. They actually financially incentivize the state to provide for you if your dad isn't present in the home. So they're not even letting you have an ethnic group, right? I mean, at least the untouchables in India get to be untouchables. Right. Their dad doesn't have to deal with like, you know, the kid decides he wants to be a girl untouchable instead of a boy untouchable. And the dad gets thrown into jail for complaining about like, at least they leave you have your cast of untouchables. We don't actually get to have that because they could destroy your family in a variety of ways at any time. And then you're understood as the person speeds past you on the freeway, you're just understood as an economic failure. And that is actually worse than being white. So that's why in looking at homelessness as a problem or a barometer, something that tells us so much, I'm doing economics, that's where we're going next. Because although I think mental illness is incredibly prevalent. I think far more important in a casino is not how weird your behavior is, but how much money you have, because that determines where you get to sit and what you get to play and what kind of complimentary drinks you get and all kinds of other things. So, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it might, I want to quibble on principle and, and say that it's really about status, but that money is the thing that buys the status. And, mm-hmm. and there are ways to cheat. You can, you can jump up above your money class with certain status things that fame yeah. allows. Yeah. Uh, and, but then you're going to get the money eventually by getting there. And that's, right. that's you know, the hunger games, yeah. the hunger games, I think is perhaps my absolute favorite metaphor for the United States. It, it really, <laughs> it just all too well describes yeah. uh, the caste system. It, it, I think she was onto something there. Did you want to talk about before we go that these could be kind of brief points, the, the distribution of homelessness across the U S today, or do we cover that sufficiently? Was there a specific kind of thing you wanted to say about that? I didn't know if you had numbers. Yeah. I mean, I just real quick, I think people, I think some people think that it has to do with weather, mm, but right. it's, it's more reliably high, the homeless population where there is both social provision and political tolerance for public homelessness. So refusal to clean up encampments, um, refusal necessarily to do something, just kind of letting people take over, homeless people take over public spaces indefinitely. Where those two things come together, you're going to have a higher population. So where that comes together with great weather, California is kind of in a league of its own in terms of homeless population. But there are cold weather places like Illinois or New York or Massachusetts that would probably surprise people, but they have that combination of political tolerance of public homelessness with social provision. Right, right, right. So where is that going in the future? And I'm thinking, you know, you you leave a a small city of homeless people to themselves and throw some food at them for 80 years and it grows as a blob and society continues to fall apart and it's California and you got road warrior going on at some point, right? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think that I think that what you're getting with 
the future, which we'll, we'll handle next week as well, is the growth of forms of order and forms of society that are completely outside the system. They're not even actually capable of being traced. And this is my twisted version of hopefulness in this episode, this specific episode, because it could actually be possible if you have a group that you don't have to be homeless in order to practice certain forms of exit from the system and its ways and its mores that the homeless do as well, simply because they have no other choice. They don't have choices about, you know, participation or the hope that their kid, if he plays his cards right and doesn't say anything risky on social media when he's 17, can get into a certain kind of college. And then hopefully they're not they're not really in the American they're not really in the lottery system anymore where we're all like scrambling, trying not just to get ahead, but to stay where we are. Hunger games. So if you, you know, if you organize in your given district, as it were, I think that's probably a better future alternative than waiting for the system to care about you. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. What I find most difficult now is, uh, wondering how to do that or how to encourage people to do that because you look around where you are and your neighbors aren't necessarily all going to be on the same page. Right. Right. And you can't just go to a meetup group uh, and, and, you know, find, I guess you can, you can just go find the preppers, but then after our last episodes, maybe that's not what you want to do. Right. Like, (laughs) so, so definitely we're going to keep listening because you're talking about uh, peaceful exits, exits. You're talking about uh, not being uh, what they're talking about in the news these days. Uh, with dissatisfied white males, we're, we're a very different breed, as it were. And to keep learning about how that path can come our way, I think it it is very much about, well, who are your neighbors? Like until you know who are your neighbors, you don't know whether or not you should move somewhere else. And then when you move somewhere else, you know, what are the things to look for? And that, that's maybe many, many broadcasts ahead. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. What yeah. do you think? Yeah. And I, I also think that homelessness as a barometer is not not just something I brought up to tug on the heartstrings. I mean, I think it should, but I also think that like we talked about with ideological fringe groups, people who are pushed to the fringes of a given society usually tell you more about what that society actually cares about because those people with their distinctives aren't able to participate in it then the society, especially if you're on the inside of it, is actually able to tell you about what it's doing and what it's for and where it's going. So if there's a whole group of people that wash out economically, uh, wash out in their capacity to, to get better, to be well in some sort of basic functioning way every day, then that tells me that the society is driven by a, a love of money and also a way of coping with complex human problems that is materialistic. Let's get them on a medication and let's get them into this tiny house that's behind two layers of barbed wire in Oakland, rather than solutions that would actually be human scale and therefore probably more lasting for those human beings who have souls, uh, no matter how strange they may seem to others. And all that's without even mentioning, I mean, I shouldn't say it that way. Let me, let me repeat this. What you said there is that the solution that the regime gives is ever an empirical one. It is ever one that believes that the seen is all that is seen. 
And so quite truly, in this whole conversation about mental illness, psychosis, struggle, a culture of status that destroys more than it builds up, uh, we've done all this without once mentioning demons.